a world, in a world, in a world, in a world, in a land, in an age, in the future, in every age, in the future. Hey there, y'all. Get on down to do the trailer park. It's time to talk some Yeehaw. movies. Uh, Jeffrey, Jimmers, are you stoked? Oh, uh, so yeah. Stoked. Oh, yeah, yeah, so so super stoked. Uh, so the first movie we're going to talk about in the trailer park today is a little film called Spectre. Now, I'm going to defer much of this conversation to one Jimmers. Jimmers McDuty Pants. You the Bondo fire? Uh, yeah, J- I J- am. Jimmers is an unabashed... Bondophile, yes, like what you said. So, Jimmers, you are the Bondophile. This is the newest Daniel Craig rendition of James Bond. It's also mm-hmm. directed by Sam Mendes, who did the last film, which was universally acclaimed, except it was not Jimmersly acclaimed. Uh, he might tell you why that is in a moment. But, by all indications, what are you thinking about this trailer there, guy? I will say I don't see anything remotely actiony in this trailer. I think there's one gunshot, and it's at the very end for the title sequence, where it has the bullet hits the screen and it so cracks it really like ice, and then it forms into the Spectre logo. I guess that's supposed to be the new Spectre logo. And um, I like that. Like I feel like James Bond all the time. Like people think it's just a um, uh a really, really long-term action franchise. And I feel like Bond, first and foremost, is not supposed to be an action hero. He's supposed to be a thinker, and it's supposed to be dramatic. And this is kind of like, if you haven't read all the the Fleming novels, like I've read every single word Fleming ever wrote about Bond and half of the shit that was written by people later. And, um, like, Bond is not like this in any of the novels. Like, for instance, there's, uh, you know, the novel um, You Only Live Twice. It's the one, the movie version is where Sean Connery gets converted into a Japanese man. Um, (laughs) It's a lot more believable in the novel, the way it's written. Um, He actually pretends to be a deaf mute and so forth. But, like, in the novel, um, it's because he's, like, going insane because his wife has been killed by Blofeld, head of Spectre. And so they send him on this throwaway, basically, suicide mission, and he's not even allowed to bring a gun. So it's, like, an entire novel where James Bond doesn't touch a gun. Like, you yeah. would never see that in a movie. Like, that's that's not how directors, and I think Hollywood, well... I'm, I don't know, the, man. The, this, the film producers think of, of James Bond. This, um, this well, Daniel yeah. Craig incarnation has been more cerebral. Uh, like, I think that was one of the... I mean, Skyfall was... I guess it had good reviews. A lot of people liked it. You didn't like it. I was sort of indifferent to it. Like, I didn't really think it lived up to what it was supposed to be. So, what what are your expectations with this Spectre, other than the fact that uh, you liked the closing little bit? I, I'm kind of excited about it because, just by virtue of the name, it sounds like they're trying to get back to their roots. Like, Spectre is discussed in Thunderball, and um, You Only Live Twice... And um, in the novels, uh, the other one is um, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah. And then, you know, most of the rest of them, it's about uh, Smirsh, which is supposed to be like the KGB assassination squad. Um, 
But so, so it's kind of cool. Yeah, Smurfs smir- are killing people. Smursh. It's like smirk. They will smirk up. It's it's death the spies <laughs> is what it stands for. It's supposed to be an acronym. It's a portmanteau of, of two Russian words. Yeah, okay, um, so like I I remember like hearing little bits about Spectre here and there. Uh, it always seemed like it was you know, like it was never really established what the hell was going on with them. So that's accurate with Spectre, right? Um, yeah, whatever. It's supposed to be like special executive for um something something terrorism and extortion but it's supposed to be like this trilateral commission of criminals so basically just like a trilateral commission and so all these world powers from around the world get together and they they have their group and they go out and they do large scale crimes you know like in thunderball they they steal nuclear weapons from nato and then they use them to blackmail the british government um yeah and and like that's that's kind of like the other thing too I feel like they're trying to harken back to, like, 50s novels and 60s movies with Sean Connery, like the old stuff. And I'm kind of cool with that. Um, yeah. I actually, I wish they would just go back and just, like, remake the novels in a really, really authentic, you know, like, way. And try to be, like, real, um, what, what I'm looking for. Like, at a high level of fidelity of the novels. Even if they had to set it in the 1960s or something. I feel like that would be cool. That's a good point, actually. Do you think that James Bond would actually be better served now on television? Yeah, well, it was like we were talking about with Idris Elba and him, and I was talking about, like, you know, like, it's not just because he's black and I hate black people. Um, like, James Bond... Uh, Jeffrey, when we be... edit this, we're, we're going to use this sound clip to blackmail him later. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, you, you know, it's like he is supposed to be, like, the last guardian of a dying breed, and the, the British know that they're in decline and the sun is setting on the Empire, and he's supposed to be like this, you know, like with this near suicidal neuroses trying to, to um, you know, uh, rage against that. And um, I, I feel, you know, like he, he's supposed to be of the old guard. So to make him like too cool and hip and, you know, like black is the new black. What was the original? We said orange is the new black. What did black used to be? Black is the new white. Uh, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But, I mean, like, he's supposed to be of the old school. I think, you know, right. part of my qualms about uh, Skyfall was it, like, it, it, like, undid so much of what was right about James Bond. And I felt How like... How do you mean? Well, like, Money Penny coming into it. And it's like one thing, all right, like, they reintroduced the new Money Penny. Okay, like, I'm cool with that. L- like, James Bond would never, ever, ever in a million years fuck Money Penny in the novels or the early movies. Like she's supposed is, to represent. Is it because this she has the herbs? No, it's because um, she's supposed to represent like this sort of like maternal protection that's intertwined with her, you know, endless longing oh, for Bond. Okay, so no, no and, herpes. Yeah, and in the movies, really, um, uh, Mary Goodnight is Bond's personal secretary. Money Penny's very rarely mentioned. It's just like he goes up to see M, and it's like. I walked by Money Penny's desk and nodded at her, and she let me in. You know what I mean? Like that's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, his secretary is the one that he—he's almost always fucking and stuff. And uh, actually, at the end of one of the, the Man with the Golden Gun, um, he's thinking about marrying her, and he's like, "Fuck that shit! I'm James Bond. I'm not going to marry my secretary." <laughs> and you know, like he runs yeah. off. Yeah. And uh, um, oh so I, I think you know it's supposed to be that it's this kind of like unrequited love, or they play these games with each other. You like by having her fuck him fuck Money Penny in the first forty five minutes of the film, 
like she's no longer Money Penny. Like that is not the archetype for Money Penny in these films. And the other thing that kind of concerns yeah, me about but how long have people been waiting for that? Well, how long were people waiting to see um, Yoda in a lightsaber fight? It doesn't mean it was a good idea. You know, like, people are stupid. Um, but, uh, point. But, but the thing that concerns me about this, I mean, like, did you catch the nuances of it? Like, he's holding the picture in the Spectre trailer, and it has three people. It's like a yeah. father, and it looks like two boys, and one of the faces what? is burned out. I, I, the first time I watched it, I thought it was supposed to be, like, the mother. But it's a boy, if you look. No, at the it's thing. two boys, right. Yeah. So, and, so is it supposed to say that James Bond has a brother? Yeah, and I think the implication and his is that brother is the Spectre. Yeah, and the, the yeah, brother. And the dark side. I think. Well, I think not just somebody inspector. I think it's supposed to be Blofeld himself. Is the impression I get. Mm. Okay. And then because it, it has um, Christoph Waltz at the very end, you know, veiled in shadow, and he's like, "Like we've been waiting for you to come here for a long time," you know, or whatever shit. And I, I mean, I think that's, that's what the orgy commence. Yeah. Oh wait. But I mean, like that is not the bond from the novels. That is not the bond from the early films. And, uh, like, there's so many other dramatic places they could go with it. Like, the, bon- the novels are way more exciting. Um, yeah. For instance, at the end of um, uh, You Only Live Twice, Bond gets caught in an explosion and he has amnesia. And at the beginning of uh, The Man with the Golden Gun, he ends up getting abducted by the uh, Soviet Secret Service. And the KGB brainwashes him into killing M. And the the British Secret Service only discovers it after he tries to spray um, arsenic all over M in his office, and then they put him in an institution and they're trying to rehabilitate him. So they send him on another suicide mission, thinking uh-huh. either he's going to die and they won't have to worry about him, or have affirmed his uh, loyalty once again. L- like that doesn't happen in the movies. Like it's completely yeah. formulaic. And I mean, they're trying to get away from that a little bit with Mendez and Daniel Craig, but I feel like there are a lot of other places they could go. Rather than rewriting the entire mythos of James Bond. Where does Casino Royale stand in your echelon of Bond films? Like, is it your number one? Um, it... Probably. Um, I, I think if I were really objective about what was the best film, it probably really is the new Casino Royale. All right. Um, there, was, so, there was one with Barry Nelson in uh, the late 50s also. But, um... I definitely gave Ashley Green two <laughs> thumbs up. Ava Green. Oh, yeah. Ava Green. Sorry. Yeah, she's she's uh, quite the accomplished actress. <laughs> um, <laughs> that too. Yeah, but I mean, then again, there's like no nostalgia factor for it, also, because it came out in whatever 2005. So uh, yeah, but I, it's a very good film. I really liked what they were doing with that, and then Quantum of Solace came out, and it was like, well, uh, Quantum of Solace just didn't make any sense. No, it was terrible. Well, he seemed very disjointed. Yeah, like yeah. like he's chasing after Mister White. He was like the main bad guy. You know, Lashif was working underneath Mr. White at the end of the last film. So he's chasing after Mr. White. And, like, Mr. White escapes 15 minutes into the movie by, by running through an Italian sewer. And then they just never talk about him again. They're just like, but there's an even higher guy who works for Quantum, and he has a bowl cut, and he's completely unintimidated. It was like a guy who was, like, four foot eight and had a bowl cut. And James Bond spent the rest of the movie chasing him around. And then it was about, like, Bolivian water policy. And uh, I'm like, but what about Mr. White? Like the guy who just murdered his girlfriend. But then the storyline, like he he murdered James Bond's girlfriend, Vesper Lind, like a week ago. But he just like forgets about him. This is what I'm talking about with movies. Like you're expected not to think about it. Um, True that. But uh, as far as this film goes, Jeffrey, what what are your impressions? What are your hopes? What are your fears? Um, 
Well, I haven't even seen uh, the last one yet, so... <laughs> you haven't even seen Skyfall? I, oh! Yeah, probably because lots of people said, yeah. But uh, is it worth really? a watch? I'm glad. Oh. Um, no. <laughs> no? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, like, could... he fights giant Komodo dragons inexplicably, and he has sex with, like, an Indonesian teenage prostitute, and she and he's just like... Like, um, you know, show me where the bad guy's Wait. lair is, and then he, she gets killed ten minutes later, and he doesn't care. I, How I mean, big it was were the Komodo dragons. Are they like they were Megalania st- type big? They were at least fifty percent larger than actual Komodo dragons, and they wow. moved. Yeah, really. There was yeah. there was a a relative called Megalania that you know was alive when humans got to Australia. Probably ate quite a few of them. That was just, it was like 26 feet long. It's just, I'm going to do a, a piece That's a on lot it. Of dragon. But, they, they're, but they're dead now. Oh, <laughs> oh, damn it, Skyfall. All right, so uh, you, you don't really have very many expectations anyway. I, I would have to say that when I viewed the trailer, I, I thought it had more potential than Skyfall. It quantum, like, Quantum Solace was, was shit anyway. And, like, I agree, Casino Royale is probably up there is the top one or two or three of the, the is, entire franchise is, anyway. But this, is this one solace where he got, you know, his nuts beaten. Yeah, that is Casino that's Royale. Casino Royale. That was a weird scene. It was, it was weird though. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Uh, yeah. I agree. It's because it made Bond vulnerable, very vulnerable. And then what most men fear the most or one of the most things, you know. Uh, but as far as, like, it seemed like the, there was much more of a mystery aspect with this film than any Bond film I've seen, pff, what, in the last 20, 30 years? Right. Yeah. But, but I gotta say, like, I thought the aesthetic of this looked really good. Like, the boardroom where it was coming up over the people's shoulders from the balcony, and then you could see, like, the board table. And it has it was all great, like, it. Illuminati kind of vibe to it. That's what I was... The, with the specter when he walks in. That's Yeah, that's exactly what I was wow. thinking. I was, I was just thinking Dr. Evil, you know, maybe he's going to start nibbling on Mr. Bigglesworth or something. Whatever. Okay, guys, I think the trailer park is closed. Get on your pickups and get on out of here. Yeehaw! All right, bye, everybody. And now it's time for another palate cleanser. Cool, biting the tire, puncturing it. The cop changed the tire, but when he returned, the bull mastiff cross again attacked his tire, again puncturing it. Another sergeant came to the officer's aid, but he too had his tire attacked and punctured. So an animal control officer was called in, but yes, he too had his tire attacked and punctured. Search iTunes for Sobcast and keep an eye out for Super Gorilla. And now it's time for my science, history, and technology segment I call Cool Shit. This time I'll tell you how glass kills bear, one robot trains for the singularity, and this sword's like 
totally tubular. Glass kills bear. Hugh Glass, who lived from 1780 to 1833, was an American fur trapper and frontiersman noted for his exploits in the American West during the first third of the 19th century. Glass was born in Pennsylvania to Irish parents. He was an explorer of the watershed of the Upper Missouri River in present-day North Dakota, South Dakota, and Montana. Glass was famed, most of all, as a frontier folk hero in his legendary cross-country trek. Glass's most famous adventure began in 1822 when he joined General Ashley's expedition to ascend the Missouri River as part of a fur trading venture. While scouting ahead of his trading partners for game, Glass was surprised by a grizzly bear mother with her two cubs. Before he could fire his rifle, the bear charged, picked him up, and threw him to the ground. Glass got up, grappled for his knife, and fought back, stabbing the animal repeatedly as the grizzly raked him time and time again with her claws. Glass managed to kill the bear with a knife. Let that be a lesson to you. Never give up. But was left badly mauled and unconscious. A man named Henry became convinced the man would not survive his injuries. Henry asked for two volunteers to stay with Glass until he died and then bury him. Bridger, then 19 years old, and Fitzgerald, then 23 years old, stepped forward and, as the rest of the party moved on, began digging his grave. Later claiming that they were interrupted in the task by attack by the Arikaras tribe, the pair grabbed Glass's rifle, knife, and other equipment and took flight. Bridger and Fitzgerald incorrectly reported to Henry that Glass had died. Despite his injuries, Glass regained consciousness. He did so only to find himself abandoned, without weapon or equipment, suffering from a broken leg, the cuts on his back exposing bare ribs, and all his wounds festering. Glass lay mutilated and alone more than 200 miles from the nearest American settlement at Fort Kiowa on the Missouri River. In one of the more remarkable treks known to history, Glass set his own leg, ow, wrapped himself in a bear hide his companions had placed over him as a shroud, and began to crawl. To prevent gangrene, Glass laid his wounded back on a rotting log and let maggots eat the dead flesh. Deciding that following the Grand River would be too dangerous because of hostile tribes, Glass crawled overland south towards the Cheyenne River using Thunder Butte, a prominent landmark visible for miles, as a navigation tool. It would take him six weeks to reach the Cheyenne River. Glass survived mostly on wild berries and roots. On one occasion, he was able to drive two wolves from a downed bison calf and feasted on the meat. Aided by friendly Native Americans who sewed a bear hide, I'm sure it was good old-fashioned sterile bear hide, to his back to cover the exposed wounds, as well as providing him with food and a couple of weapons to defend himself. Glass made his way to the Cheyenne River, fashioned a crude raft, and floated down the river, eventually reaching the safety of Fort Kiowa. After a long recuperation, Glass sent out to track down and avenge himself against Bridger and Fitzgerald. When he found Bridger on the Yellowstone near the mouth of the Bighorn River, Glass spared him purportedly because of Bridger's youth. When he found Fitzgerald, he discovered that Fitzgerald had joined the United States Army. Glass restrained himself because the consequences of killing a U.S. soldier was death. However, he did recover his rifle. Glass's survival odyssey has been recounted in numerous books. A monument to Glass now stands near the site of his mauling at the south shore of Shade Hill Reservoir on the forks of the Grand River. Glass would again return to the frontier as a trapper and fur trader, Later, he was employed as a hunter for the garrison at Fort Union. 
He was killed with his two fellow trappers in the winter of 1833 on the Yellowstone River, an attack by the Arikara. But even death couldn't stop Glass completely. After Glass's death, the Arikara tribe, in April 1833, later tried to pass themselves off as friendly members of the Minutaris tribe to a party of trappers. However, Johnson Gardner, one of the trappers, recognized a rifle that one of the Indians had as the very rifle Glass got back from Fitzgerald after Fitzgerald and Bridger left him for dead in 1823. Alarmed by this, Gardner surmised that they were actually of the Arikaras tribe. The Arikaras were seized and executed in response to the death of Hugh Glass. And our next story, One Robot Trains for the Singularity. Computerized Precision for Deadly Melee Arts For thousands of years, nothing on Earth was deadlier with a sword than a human. People have since largely moved on from slicing weapons to firearms and explosives. But the art of swordsmanship remains a squarely human domain. Or at least it did, until researchers in Japan started teaching freaking robots how to swing swords. Have they not seen the Terminator? In April, Japan's Namiki Laboratory gave a robot arm a foam sword, paired it with high-speed mechanical eyes, and taught it how to duel a human. Perhaps teaching a robot how to fight a human isn't the best course of action. Is there another way to show off the finesse and prowess of a machine arm wielding a sharp blade that doesn't involve training on a human? Have they not seen iRobot? The robot is a creation of Yaskawa, a multinational company that specializes in servos and motors for servos with roots in Japan. No shit, a killer katana-wielding robot has roots in Japan? I would have never guessed. The robot was made for their Yakasawa Bushido project. The company joined with Isawa Machi, a master of the Aijitsu sword fighting technique. Side by side, Machia and the Yaskawa Motoman MH-42 robot arm completed five challenges, first slicing their way through flowers, fruit, pea pods, tatame, then they rapidly cut a thousand times into tatame practice targets. At the end of the last trial, Machi looks exhausted, but his unfeeling machine counterpart is ready to go as ever. Isn't it a good thing it can't walk yet? Maniacal laugh. Maniacal laugh. Maniacal laugh. Maniacal laugh. Maniacal In our next story, this sword's like totally tubular. Think carbon nanotubes are a newfangled thing? Think again. The Crusaders felt the might of the tube. <laughs> Insert dirty thought here. <laughs> when they fought against the Muslims and their distinctive patterned Damascus blades. Sabres from Damascus, now in Syria, date back as far as 900 AD. Strong and sharp, they are made from a type of steel called woots. Their blades bear a banded pattern thought to have been created as the sword was hardened and forged, but the secret of the sword's manufacture was lost in the 18th century. Materials researcher Peter Poffler and his colleagues at Dresden University, Germany, have taken electron microscope pictures of the sword and found that Wootz has a microstructure of nanometer-sized tubes, just like carbon nanotubes used in modern technologies for their lightweight strength. The tubes were only revealed after a piece of the sword was dissolved in hydrochloric acid to remove another microstructure in the sword, nanowires of the mineral cementite, a type of iron carbide. Wootz's 
That's that's a funny funny word. Wootz's ingredients include iron ores from India that contain transitional metal impurities. It was thought that these impurities helped cementite wires to form, but it was unclear how. Paul Fleur thinks carbon nanotubes could be the missing piece of the puzzle. At high temperatures, the impurities in the Indian ores could have catalyzed the growth of nanotubes from carbon in the burning wood and leaves used to make the woots, Poffler suggested. These tubes could then have filled with cementite to produce the wires in the patterned blades. If Poffler is right, nanotube researchers do not mind being preempted by Indian steelmakers. The important fact is that nanotubes were serving some very useful purpose even before they were discovered, says chemist Andre Klobistov of the University of Nottingham, UK. They should inspire us to look for new practical applications of these remarkable nanostructures. The next step, says Poffler, will be to take the latest carbon nanotube technology and work with bladesmiths to try to recreate the lost process. (laughs) 